0: what is the greatest evil in the world and what is the greatest need in the world what is the greatest evil in the world and what is the greatest need in the world those are two questions we're going to come back to uh, later on this morning as we start into the second half of the book of acts But do bear them in mind from the start today, just in case at any point you start wondering what the relevance of all this is. Because this chapter helps us answer those two questions, which are two questions that you could... You could ask anybody those questions this week and they would have an opinion on them. What is the greatest evil in the world and what is the greatest need in the world? Ask anybody and they'll have an opinion on them. But before we come to try and answer those questions today. First I want to orientate us a bit as we start into the second half of the book of Acts. It's a few weeks since we last looked at the book of Acts together. Uh, some of you weren't here back in March when we started into this uh, book again, uh, because in God's providence, uh, he, he's brought you along more more recently. Uh, for some today, it may be the, be the first and last uh, sermon uh, that you hear in this series. And so as we begin into this second half or, or second quarter of the book, I want us to try and get our bearings uh, so that if, if we feel that Acts chapter 13 Is a forest that that we've parachuted into today. Uh, we'll, We'll take a couple of minutes and get our compasses out and see where we are and where we're going. For a start, it will be helpful to remember that the book of Acts begins in Jerusalem and it ends in Rome. And here in chapter 13, we are at Antioch. Antioch in modern day Turkey is the sending church for this Gentile mission which begins with the journey to Cyprus in these verses. It would be going too far to say that that Antioch was the geographical halfway point between Jerusalem and Rome where the book begins and ends. Uh, But Paul does have this growing desire to preach the gospel in Rome and Antioch here provides a base for the next phase of this Gentile mission. And so we can orientate ourselves in the book by looking at at, at where it starts and where it ends and where we're at here in chapter 13. Though as I've mentioned quite a few times before, the best place to, to get a handle on the direction of travel in Acts is chapter 1 verse 8. What is the book of Acts about? Uh, Maybe it's a book you've you've not really studied. Uh, Well, in chapter 1, verse 8, the risen Lord Jesus tells the apostles that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Uh, moving out from where they are and ending up to the ends of the earth. And, And if the gospel is to go to the ends of the earth, then the Mediterranean Sea has to be crossed. Uh, There there are are islands that that won't be reached uh, unless by boat. Uh, The gospel uh, from this chapter onwards will be brought by sea as well as by land. And Cyprus is the first of many islands that the gospel will be taken to. And in fact in this chapter we have the first Gentile convert to Christianity who who had absolutely no previous contact with Judaism at all. So there is a real sense in this chapter that new ground is being broken. But at the same time, it wouldn't be helpful to see this part of Acts as a, a totally new section of the book with, with no connection to what's gone before. Back when we began the book, I said that, that over the years, uh, many people have questioned whether the Acts of the Apostles is really uh, the best title for, for a book, which is more like some Acts of some Apostles, But more fundamentally, this book is really about the acts of the risen Jesus by his Spirit through the church. And in our passage today, we see all three of these at work. We see the risen Jesus, we see the Spirit, and we see the church. Where is the risen Jesus? Well, he's here in verse 11. Uh, When we read that the hand of the Lord is on the magician Elymas to punish him. Uh, When you read Lord in the New Testament, uh, it's almost always a reference to the Lord Jesus particularly. Jesus is here in verse 12 when we read that the proconsul was astonished at the teaching, not of Paul or Barnabas, but of the Lord. And it not that who we want people to hear when we invite them to church? We want them to go away saying that they've heard the Lord speak, that, that they're astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Where's the Holy Spirit in these verses? He's mentioned three times. In verse 2, it's the Holy Spirit who says that Barnabas and Saul are to be set apart. In verse 4, we're told that ultimately the Spirit is the one who sends them to Cyprus. And then in verse 9 we're told that Paul is filled with the Spirit as he speaks. Uh, What about the church? Well the church is the body in the opening verses of the chapter which commissions Barnabas and Saul to their work. These men are not self-appointed. Mission work in the Bible is under the oversight of the church. And so we, we see the acts of the risen Jesus by the Spirit through the church. Uh, we see that both in this chapter and throughout the book. And as we start into the second half of the book, that's still a helpful title to bear in mind. Many would entitle this next section of Acts uh, as Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, And that that is a helpful way to to map them out uh, on the the maps uh, that we may have in the back of our Bibles. Uh, But it's not a title that that I find particularly helpful to describe what's actually happening in these chapters. For a start, talking about journeys puts the focus on someone going somewhere and then coming back. But given... uh, what the Lord Jesus says in chapter 1 and verse 8, the focus surely has to be in the gospel continuing to spread outwards uh, as it does all throughout this book. But even more, uh, foundationally, the title Paul's Missionary Journeys, it, it tends to, to inadvertently put the focus more on what Paul is doing than on what the risen Jesus is doing through the Holy Spirit. So that's where we're at as we begin the second half of the book. And now having orientated ourselves somewhat, we're going to look at this important chapter under two headings. Seeing firstly in verses 1 to 3, the Spirit sending out ministers through the church. The Spirit sending out ministers through the church. Perhaps if you're relatively new to church you wonder what is the holy spirit is the holy spirit a a force or a person sometimes even christians will will speak of the holy spirit as an it rather than a he but the holy spirit is a person a a, a divine person not a human person but a person there are three persons in the Godhead the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and we see the personality of the Holy Spirit very clearly in verse 2 we see his personhood uh, when he says set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them if the Holy Spirit calls people to do certain tasks if the Holy Spirit speaks then the Holy Spirit is doing things that only a person can do the Holy Spirit is a person but how did the Holy Spirit speak here Uh, these words in verse 2 that we have in in quotation marks how did the Spirit speak them because today the Spirit speaks in Scripture. Our Confession of Faith, referencing a similar verse later on in the book of Acts, says that the supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined is the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture. Uh, And I love that description. It's not just, uh, this is what the Holy Spirit once said and it's been been preserved. It's been fossilised for us in the Bible. Uh, But rather, every time we open the Bible, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. Today we have the Holy Spirit's inscripturated word, we can say, uh, Microsoft word doesn't doesn 't think inscripturated is a, is a word uh, but but Christians do use it to describe uh, the holy spirit 's words uh, preserved for us in the Bible but still still living words not fossilized words uh, it means the spirit 's words are are always available to us we don 't uh, just need, as people had in times past, a, a prophet nearby if we want access to the Spirit's word. We always have the Holy Spirit speaking in Scripture. But how did the Spirit speak in Antioch? Was it through a voice from heaven? Well, almost certainly the Spirit spoke through the prophets who were told about are there in verse 1 in the church in Antioch. This is a beautifully diverse church. Uh, people from different backgrounds, different walks of life. And and we're told that some of them are prophets. And, and why are we told that some of them are prophets? Well, well so that we know uh, how the Holy Spirit spoke in verse 2. Uh, We do tend to associate prophets with the Old Testament. uh, But there were prophets in the early days of the New Testament as well. And when they gave a prophecy, it was just as much the Holy Spirit speaking as the Old Testament prophecies were. And here the Holy Spirit tells the church through these prophets, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them to do. Uh, and that uh, tells them two things or it tells us two things it, it, it tells us firstly that any true minister or missionary must be called by God by the Spirit in other words the church can't make a, a minister only the Holy Spirit can the church can you know pay for someone to go off to to theological college for three years which which is is important but But the church, in and of itself, cannot make a minister, only the Holy Spirit can. But it also tells us that it's the responsibility and privilege of the church to to recognize the Spirit's calling. The Holy Spirit calls and the church sets apart. And we need both. Nowhere in the Bible do men appoint themselves to ministry as Paul will put it in Romans 10:15 how are they to preach unless they are sent? But sadly a verse like that just isn't on the radar of many Christians around us. Men today start their own churches without giving it a second thought they they appoint themselves as preachers they baptize they administer the lord's supper without ever having been sent out to do so from a church without ever having any sort of spiritual authority over them and yet christian people will will go and hear them preach christian people will give money to their ministries and perhaps you challenge the, the self-appointed preacher, but they say, well, actually, I'm not self-appointed because God himself told me to preach. So, so what else can I do? And you think, well, well how can I argue with that? If, if God has called them to preach, who am I to question that? But Acts chapter 13 tells us that even for the Apostle Paul, that wasn't enough. The Apostle Paul at this point had had God himself, the Lord Jesus, speak directly to him and, and say that he was going to be sent to the Gentiles. But Paul doesn't go until the church recognises that call and sends him. In chapter twenty-two, twenty-one, 21, if you want the reference, chapter twenty-two, twenty-one, 21, Paul is giving us a flashback to a time after his conversion in chapter 9. Uh, and uh, the Lord Jesus had appeared to him and told him to get out of Jerusalem, saying, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Uh, and so that, so that happened back at the time of chapter 9, uh, even though we only learn about it in chapter twenty two twenty one. 21. So at this point, the risen Lord Jesus had himself appeared to the Apostle Paul and told him that he was going to be a missionary to the Gentiles But Paul does not begin that mission until he's set apart for it by the church. (coughs) The Lord Jesus spoke directly to Paul in a way that he doesn't speak to people today. And yet even Paul didn't begin his ministry without being sent out by the church. Perhaps someone might say... Well I've heard men preach who aren't under the oversight of any church and it's been a real blessing. It's been really powerful and people have even been converted through them. But just because God has graciously used men like that and who would deny that God uses us at times even when we go about things the wrong way. It doesn't mean that what they're doing is right. And for every positive example of a self-appointed preacher someone could point to, someone else could point to to far more negative examples. The church doesn't make ministers, the Holy Spirit does. But the church and the Spirit aren't in competition with one another. (coughs) The church recognises and it sets apart, it ordains those whom the Spirit has called true for ministers true for elders so the spirit calls the church ordains but who sends them out well in verse 3 it's them that is the church whereas in verse 4 it's the holy spirit so who is it well it's both it's the holy spirit sending them out through the church uh, people today try to set the church and the holy spirit against one another I've heard people say, well, 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 revival will come, but it won't come through the churches. But the New Testament leads us to expect the exact opposite. Paul and Barnabas are called by the Holy Spirit and ordained by the church. And they're sent out by the Spirit and by the church. Or by the Spirit and through the church. For someone to try and set the, the work of the Holy Spirit against the work of the church as if they're in competition means that they have drunk deeply from the well of modern Christian culture, but not from the wells of God's word. Yes, of course, we wouldn't expect revival to come through churches where the gospel isn't preached. But, but the Bible's pattern is that as the church brings the gospel, uh, or the Holy Spirit works through the church to bring the gospel So Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the Spirit through the church and they're sent to Cyprus. (coughs) Why Cyprus first? Well, we don't read that the Holy Spirit said send them to Cyprus. So we don't read of any direct command. There probably wasn't one. I think this is most likely just sanctified common sense. In the same way that today we don't have any divine revelations telling us where we should plant churches or send missionaries. But, but we consider questions as, well are there places they could go where, where there isn't a gospel preaching church already? Are there people who could potentially form a core group? And, and we ask questions like those to, to try and help identify where God might want us to go. And I think the church in Antioch probably landed on Cyprus by asking the same sort of questions. Cyprus was where Barnabas was from, we're told that back in chapter 4. So there's an existing connection with the island and those being sent there. And as well as that, there were already some Christians there. Chapter 11, 19 tells us that, that people have been scattered as far as Cyprus because of the persecution that arose over Stephen. So there were already Christians in Cyprus needing built up. Uh, Christians in Cyprus who, who could uh, provide some support to the mission. But the focus of this chapter is very much on reaching the lost And the focus is on reaching the lost because although the Christians had reached Cyprus, we could say that the devil had got there first. And surely the heart of the Apostle Paul is summed up by, by a quote from C.T. Studd who once said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And that's what Paul wants to do. And so they go to Cyprus, no doubt partly because they had these existing connections with that island. But primarily they go to reach those who hadn't yet heard the gospel. And that brings us to our second point this morning where we see the risen Jesus blinding and enlightening. The risen Jesus blinding and enlightening. (sighs) The first thing that Barnabas and Saul do when they arrive is proclaim the word in the synagogue of the Jews. Even though Paul is primarily the apostle to the Gentiles, the divine order is that the gospel goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And so the synagogues were a natural place to start. Uh, They start on the east coast at Salamis and they go right round the island till they reach Paphos on the west coast and when they get to Paphos they meet two men and both of these men are surprising neither of these men are what we would expect Elymas is surprising in a tragic way he is a Jewish magician and those are two words that should never have gone together God had forbidden his people long ago from practising magic or even tolerating magicians. (coughs) But twice Elimus is described as a magician. It, It flags up how serious a thing this is. Here is a man who is in rebellion against what he knows God's will is. And if that is anyone here this morning, that is a serious place In which to be. And rebellion against God is seen most clearly in the fact that he opposes the gospel. In verse 7 the Roman proconsul Sergius Paulus had summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. How amazing it would be by the way if any of our own politicians would would do that. If we would read uh, of leadership contenders for the next prime minister calling together uh, ministers of the gospel to hear what God's word would say and we pray uh, that that in days to come that might happen but while the the proconsul here is wanting to hear the word of God in verse 8 Elymas is trying to turn him away from the faith Uh, And now we come back to the question I asked at the very start this morning. What is the greatest evil in the world? And the reason that I asked it alongside the question of what is the greatest need in the world is because the two go together. Surely if we can identify the greatest need of the world, then to oppose that, to try and stop people getting it would be the greatest evil in the world. And if the Bible is true, if without Jesus Christ, men and women will end up in hell, then surely the greatest need in the world is to be saved from that. And so the greatest evil in the world is to try and stop people hearing the message. If someone had swallowed poison and there was an antidote that would save them, if they were able to get it within two hours then their greatest need in the world on a human level would be to get that antidote. And the most uh, harmful thing that anyone could do to them would be to stop the antidote getting to them, to point the the person delivering it in the wrong direction, to to deliberately uh, pour the antidote out on the ground. There's nothing worse you could do for that person. And yet that's what, what Elymas is trying to do here. And again, as with Herod in chapter 12, he's doing it for purely personal motives. <coughs> Elymas seems to have been an official attendant or an employee of the proconsul, but he knows that his job will be under threat if, if uh, Sergius Paulus believes the gospel. And so for his own personal and financial motives, Elymas tries to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And we see from Paul's reaction just how serious a thing that is. Uh, and by the way, from this point on, as verse 9 flags up, Saul will be known as Paul. Uh, the difference isn't, uh, as some think, uh, as we might assume, that, that Saul is called Saul before he's converted. And after he's converted, he, he's called Paul. But rather, verse 9 tells us that that he had two names. Uh, Saul is is a Hebrew name. Paul is is a Roman, a Latin name. Uh, And so the change of name just reflects that from this point on, Paul will be ministering uh, to to the the Gentiles uh, of the Roman Empire. Uh, And Paul, uh, as he's now being called, filled with the Holy Spirit, says something that we might not expect people filled with the Holy Spirit to say. Uh, but there it is in, in verse 10. It's a judgment of the Lord Jesus on Elymas, given through the Holy Spirit and pronounced by Paul. He says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Elymas had, had the Jewish name barred Jesus. Uh, Jesus means the Lord saves uh, and bar means son uh, so bar Jesus means son of the Lord who saves so i mean by, by the name bar Jesus he, he's not setting himself up as, as a rival to Jesus uh, as i once assumed as i assumed growing up but but he is saying i'm on god's side or that's what his name meant he should have been he should have been on God's side but Paul through the spirit says to him actually even though your name means the opposite you're actually the son of the devil and this isn't just angry Paul Jesus had told the Pharisees in his day that they were sons of their father the devil Elymas opposed the gospel because it threatened his position in the proconsul's court. It threatened his job. Uh, The the Pharisees opposed the gospel because it threatened their status in society. Elymas practiced things that the Pharisees would have been horrified by. But they're both in the same boat. Elymas who had rejected his religious upbringing and the Pharisees who, who wore that religious upbringing as a badge of honour and trusted in it for salvation, they're both evil in Jesus' book. They're both sons of the devil because they're opposing the gospel. They're, they're refusing to submit to it and they're trying to, trying to keep other people from it. And the great evil that Elmas is accused of here is making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. Paul and Barnabas have been trying to show by their teaching a straight path for how Sergius Paulus can get right with God. By, by coming to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're doing when we share the gospel. So many people around us, perhaps even some in here, think they are in on the road to God but actually it's a dead end road Uh, Paul and Barnabas want to get this Roman ruler off that dead end road but Elemas wants to put him back on it and so Paul calls Elemas out for what he is and what he's doing he's an enemy of all righteousness full of deceit and villainy Uh, and so are any who, who stand in pulpits and say well if you're a good person, you'll be saved. So are those who may even now be trying to get you to abandon your newfound faith in Jesus Christ. They may not realise what they're doing, but, but if they're trying to get you to give up your faith, they're trying to make crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And the scary thing is that here we have One person who's been brought up with God's word. One person who's been brought up going to church and yet he opposes the gospel. Whereas the other person to whom this is all completely brand new, he accepts it. The person we would expect to believe it doesn't. The person we would think would reject it accepts it. So Paul pronounces this verdict on Elymas and then he pronounces a miraculous judgment that will fall on him. Verse 11. And now behold the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Back in chapter eleven, twenty-one, we saw that the hand of the Lord was with the church in Antioch. And a great number of people believed. But here that same hand of the Lord is against Elymas. And that will be seen in him being struck with blindness. Just as Paul himself had been struck with blindness on the road to Damascus. In both those cases, that blindness was one of the covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28. As Jews who opposed the work of God, both Paul and Elymas were struck with blindness. (coughs) Like Paul had been, Elymas had to be led by the hand. In both cases it's a picture of their spiritual darkness outside of Christ. Unlike Paul, though Elymas isn't converted, at least not here. But the blindness will only be temporary. It's a judgment that's meant to lead to a knowledge of the truth. Just as church discipline is meant to wake people up to the seriousness of their condition before God. So this miracle is not without mercy Elymas isn't struck down on the spot as Herod was in the last chapter but it is a miracle of judgment Jesus did both think of him cursing the fig tree and the apostles did both as we see here now they are the exception not the rule but they did happen and I do find it interesting that those who believe the, apost- the, the apostolic gifts continue today only seem to talk about miracles of healing and not ones of judgment. But the apostles did both and for them both categories of miracles were to verify who they were. They were, as Paul puts it in Second Corinthians 12, signs of a true apostle. As we see here in verse 12, Sergius Paulus doesn't believe because of the miracle in and of itself. But he believes because the miracle proved that Paul's teaching was really the teaching of the Lord. It proved that Paul really was an apostolic messenger sent directly by the risen Lord Jesus. So in the first verses of this chapter, we have New Testament prophets speaking words which come directly from the Holy Spirit, which have been written down and preserved in Scripture. And now in these closing verses of the section, we have a miracle where someone is struck with blindness. Uh, And even though our our charismatic and Pentecostal brothers and sisters would say that the the apostolic gifts continue today with absolutely no distinction from New Testament times, I don't think these are things that they expect to see because deep down they realise that we are living in a different era today. So as I said earlier, there are two big surprises in these verses. Firstly, that the person with the Bible in his history and his background opposes the truth. And secondly, the person who worshipped other gods accepts it. And that should both sober us and encourage us. It should sober us lest any of us who have been in church for years would do exactly what Elymas does and end up rejecting the only road to life which is found in Jesus Christ. But this chapter should also encourage us because the Bible leads us to hope that unexpected people would believe the message of the gospel. never think about someone well there's no point in telling them they'll not be interested because on paper there was no reason why sergius paulus would be interested but the same holy spirit who had called and sent paul and barnabas and who filled paul as he spoke that same spirit had been preparing the proconsul and he heard the word and believed and just as we we often read that when Jesus was on earth people were astonished at his teaching so here they are astonished at the same teaching the teaching of Jesus as it comes from the mouth of Paul it's not about people believing us or being impressed with us we have nothing to impress them with but it's about letting them hear Jesus teaching that they might be astonished by his teaching not ours And through his word that we might bring them into contact with the one who came. Not not from Antioch to Cyprus, 60 miles or so. But the one who came from heaven to earth to give life to even the most hard-hearted among us. If only we would turn and trust in him. And so in closing then we need to be prepared that as the gospel breaks new ground whether that's new ground in a community or new ground within a family we need to be prepared that opposition will come that there will be those who seek to turn you away from your newfound faith but we also need to expect that unlikely people will believe the message Perhaps even the people we think will will oppose it the most. The people we we think that perhaps will be most open to the message of the gospel will reject it. But those who we think will oppose it most strongly will accept it. Humanly speaking, you might be sitting here today, trying not to listen, thinking that you are, are the last person who would believe this message. But if God's Holy Spirit chooses to work in you today, then none of that matters. In fact, you may be a a more likely candidate to believe that message than those who have sat in churches all their lives. The Lord Jesus told Ananias that Paul was to be his chosen instrument to carry his name before Gentiles and kings, as well as the kings of Israel, And many of those Gentiles and kings and lesser rulers would reject the message. But many Gentiles also and some of their kings and proconsuls would believe and their spiritual darkness would be turned to light because by the Holy Spirit and through the church, the risen Lord Jesus is sending his message of salvation to the ends of the earth so which category are you in today is this all so familiar to you that it just washes over you and that familiarity breeds contempt or do you feel yourself being moved to wonder at the teaching of the Lord and if you're in the first category Then your greatest need in all the world, by God's grace, is to be moved from contempt to awe. And here today, the same Lord Jesus, who spoke through Paul, is present by his Spirit today. And he is appealing to you to put your trust in him. Salvation is on offer to you today. If only you will put out your hand and grasp it that your life both now and for all eternity would be totally transformed. Amen. Well, let's praise the God who turns darkness into light by turning to Psalm 18. Uh, Psalm 18 will sing from 23 to 27. Psalm 18, 23 to 27, starting on page 29. Uh, And particularly verse 24, Afflicted people you will save, but proud eyes you bring low. You light my lamp, the Lord my God, my darkness lighten. So the Lord Jesus uh, went through that physical darkness on the cross uh, that we might have our spiritual eyes opened and the darkness lifted from us. Psalm 18, 23 to 27, will stand to sing praise.